0: Welcome to the Digitally Native podcast, a podcast that explores what it means to be digital and to live digital lives. I'm your host, Fungai, and together, we will explore a range of topics and trends around digital and social media and digital innovation. So grab a drink, buckle up, and let's get right into it. Hello, and welcome to another podcast episode. I hope you're having a good start to your week. Today, my guest on the podcast is Professor Sean Jacobs. He works with the New School in New York, uh, but he's also the founder of a very prominent pan-African blog, Africa is a Country, which has been running for many years now. And we talk a little bit about the history um, of Africa as a Country, how it came about and Why? Uh, but then also very interestingly in this uh, podcast episode, we talk about the role of precursors to the Internet that enabled a kind of pan-Africanism to start to grow among African audiences. And we talk a lot about the role of DSTV, which is uh, the, the broadcasting platform out of South Africa that has been able to filter into a lot of parts of the African continent and therefore foment some kinds of inter, inter-African exchanges that might not have been possible without DSTV. So we talk about this and and see how that fits into uh, the space or the timeline pre-digitality that has then enabled us to have platforms like Africa as a country come about and foment more of that connection across the continent. So this was a really interesting episode. I really hope that you make time to listen to it. And I'll catch you on the other side.
1: Thanks for having me, guys. So I am currently in my day job, I'm an associate professor of international affairs at the New School, which is in New York City. Um, I've been there since 2009. Um, and then I'm also the founder editor of Africa as a Country, which is a kind of, in a boring way, you can call it like a site of new, what do you call it? New writing opinion and analysis, but but more than, you know, it's it's more than that. I think it's, it's kind of, it emerges sort of a, we don't have many, publications that are equivalent, say like the New Statesman or The Nation, you know, there's kind of a public opinion, public public intellectual, public uh, magazines of opinion. We don't have that in the continent much. And mm-hmm. my idea was like, imagine I could create something like I create created online. So those are like my two hats, I would say that I mostly wear.
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. And you know, the history of Africa as a country is very interesting. I think um, you'd started previously with another blog um, and then it evolved into Africa as a country. What was the thinking um, from the initial blog into Africa as a country?
1: So at that time, I was a grad student at the University of London um, in Birkbeck College, and I was finishing a PhD. This is around 2004. I was finishing yeah. a PhD in, in political science, but with but, but a very kind of a media focus, I was trying to write about the, the media politics of South Africa's political transition. So just, you know, it's says making a case that if you wanted to understand political change in South Africa from sort of 89 to 94, you had to also, you had to look more closely at like the political role of media. Um, and it just happens that that's that's around the same time that people were writing on the web you know the, the so called weblog or blog mm-hmm. mostly like on uh, blogger i think was the first one's in wordpress yeah. This feels like so old so, I know. <laughs> so with that in mind i just kind of thought oh i i i, I think i was also becoming an immigrant i had mm-hmm. i was moving between um i'd left south africa because that, when i started my phd i worked for idasa which was a Public Policy Institute in Cape Town. Mm-hmm. Then I got a scholarship, a uh, Commonwealth scholarship, and I went to live in, in London uh, to do the PhD, but they don't require you to be, uh, you know, pre- you, you don't have to like be in residence. You can, you spend some time there, and then most of the time you're just writing a PhD. So I came to live in New York with my then girlfriend. She's now my mm-hmm. wife, but, um, and while I was here, I basically realized I was an immigrant and I I was, kind of make, trying to make sense of the way that North American media, and I was reading The Guardian, of course, online, The Times, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I thought, thought like, how were they writing about Africa? I just think, so the first impetus of why did I start this website, which was first called Leo Africanus, that was its original name, um, was I wanted to respond to the, for what, what you could just characterize it as, you know, negative, uh, decontextualized, decontextual um, reporting, analysis on the African continent and its people, and I, I thought, okay, i not. I didn't think, oh, I'm not going to be CNN or something, or the Columbia Journalism Review. I just mm-hmm. thought, oh, I, 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 this medium exists. We have the democratization of publishing, and anybody could go online, uh, and you could develop, like, you know, like a small niche audience. And I think it came out of that. It just came out of like wanting in real time to respond to the kind of media analysis that was being circulated about the African continent. And the interesting thing is, at the time, most of the analysis, I would say, of two kinds. One was essentially North Americans or or white Europeans, so Mm -hmm. Euro-American, who were debating among themselves about Africa, so Africa wasn't part of the conversation. And the Americans mostly, it was about U.S. foreign policy in Africa, or mm-hmm. develop you know developmentalism. So the work of um, international NGOs, human rights organiz human rights organizations, humanitarian organizations. That was mm-hmm. what it was, and I was sort of pushing against that, saying, "Well, what are, what are the role of African agents? Like, what where's African agency in all of this? If you want to sort of use academic terms, mm-hmm. and, and so the agency would be what? Are, how what? Are, what are Africans thinking about this particular thing? So initially, I think I was just just reproducing like what they were saying about Africa. So I would like to summarize it. And then I would suggest like, why don't you go read X or Y if you wanted um, a different opinion. So the initial impetus was really just sort of me on the fly media analysis, like quick, short, you know, punchy media analysis about something that would happen. And Mm -hmm. for whatever was available at the time, because you have to remember like early the first decade of the 2000s, while Africans were on the internet, um, and African publications were, they weren't as active as they are now. Like, you you know, videos, articles, sometimes you might just, they might just have like a a shopfront website with like the name of the paper, but you couldn't click on the articles. So for whatever was available, I was, I was doing one kind of summarizing what people were doing and critiquing it with my sort of limited critique. And Mm -hmm. Sometimes offering people alternatives of what to read,
0: and then we evolved into Africa as a country. And what what caused that shift from more of a personal blog to a more communal and collective idea?
1: I mean, it was it's basically again the time, like two thousand and nine, around two thousand eight, two thousand and nine to so right, I would say two seven, two eight is when Facebook makes a transition from something that is mostly aimed at students campuses mm-hmm. you know young people particularly students mm-hmm. and initially lead universities um as a, as a kind of closed social network and then it became a mass social network twitter moves twitter suddenly became very popular and the consequence of something like what was you know for the Africans, because remember it, it starts in 2009 in the summer it becomes africa as a country mm-hmm. is that if, if i was making this critique and i was sharing things when you have facebook and twitter people don't need me as a mediator anymore right to do that to do that sharing to act as a like middleman um mm-hmm. suddenly anybody could just put it on facebook anybody could just tweet it so that mm-hmm. meant summarizing things and a lot of websites by the way after that they kept doing it but i didn't yeah. quickly realize well i quickly realized that if you if you if you wanted to stay relevant and want it to be part of the conversation, then you have to move to this other, this kind of other function, which is you will now have to provide people with those voices, those other kinds of opinions that they that they're not seeing. And that meant so the initial impetus was, okay, I can't write about everything. I'm not an expert in all these different subjects. So I started slowly recruiting people. Um, I would say over a period from like two, 2010 so 2009, I started the website, mm-hmm. 2010 till about 2012, you, you sort of saw like a group of people coming. And then the, the, what happened after that was you just, I, I realized like, okay, nobody would, it, it, because it was all volunteer labor, um, you know, I had a job with most, some people were grad students, other people were academics, some people were journalists, researchers, and nobody, they were basically working for free and if yeah. you work for free, it's impossible to keep people for long. And so it, the model that it worked on was that there always would be this turnover of people. People would come and go. Um, and so you've had since since 2009 up until now, I think we've had more than, we've had almost 2,000 people written for the website. Wow. This can range from somebody writing 50 articles to wow. somebody writing one or somebody yeah. volunteering their time as an editorial Board member mm-hmm. or a contributing editor, but yeah, that that whole it, it was essentially the technology changed. Things were moving from personal to group blogs, yeah. and also within the media environment. The the third element, yeah, I think, is suddenly, and then this too goes to this point about the the democratization of the technology. And one doesn't want to overstate that because you know then you then you get sort of very romantic ideas about how we can challenge mainstream or dominant media outlets. But I think mm-hmm. what did happen was it was cheaper. You yeah. didn't have to, you, you could work online, you could, um, you, you know, you could, you, you didn't need sort of complicated technology to post an article. Right. Like apps existed, WordPress existed, et cetera. So you, you yourself could put up, you know, it was a template for a title, a subtitle, et cetera. Mm-hmm. You know, putting photographs, suddenly Flickr was appearing with Creative Commons, okay. licensed photography et cetera, uh, Wikipedia with its wiki comments where you can also source photographs or video clips. So something happened to the internet that made possible that then Africa as a country could emerge in that moment.
0: And what's interesting, and I think we've had this conversation um, before, um, and you've written about this in your book, um, the role that um, DSTV has played um, in creating a kind of... uh, I want to say Pan-African, but that's not quite what I mean, but like just making Africans aware of each other's culture more and how that precedes this, this infrastructure, this digital infrastructure that then enables this kind of communal communality. Because I remember like into the late nineties when, you know, satellite dishes really became a thing. And then, you know, you're watching SABC and you're getting very much a sense of what South African culture is. And, becoming very embedded in that space what role do you think that prior to the digital infrastructure becoming available spaces like dstv would have played
1: that's a good question it's a good question like what people often forget is dstv i think was launched in 95 or 96 Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so initially i think the the main thing about dstv was that it just replicated what it was doing inside south africa with with Mnet. So Mnet is
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, essentially like a kind of localized, like a local sort of an HBO in South Africa. So it was like, we needed to buy a cable box, but what it meant was mostly um, sort of second tier um, American movies. So mm-hmm. not the best American not art house films, but sort mm-hmm. of popular films and not the great films, but it created like culturally, it meant people were watching American culture and yeah. mostly um, English, European sport, uh, because at that time, the, the, the public broadcaster in South Africa was still very powerful and they still controlled like, you know, when you would watch rugby or soccer or cricket, mm-hmm. football or cricket. Um, but over time, DSTV basically, they bought up all the rights to international sport, local sport. They started mm-hmm. off by, by, by people watching American culture, but mm-hmm. quickly, people were beginning on DSTV to see local South, South African culture being produced and reproduced for them, mm-hmm. sort of intake. So you're right, the kind of, the first way in people with, in which young Africans, late 90s, from late 90s onward, because they are consuming mostly, you know, media, television, etc., cetera, making sense of themselves, is initially, I would say, they're watching kind of an American version of themselves. But then mm-hmm. over time, they're watching... Um, uh, Channel O. Right. Or they begin to see about reality. And you said I've, I've written about this. They, this reality television that is produced for them. Yeah. Initially, exactly. the reality TV that's produced for them is South African. It's mostly about South Africa. The first, right. big, brothers, the first big Brother yeah. is yeah. Big Brother South Africa. It's like yeah. 10 or 12 South Africans, mostly white initially, right. then equally white and black. And mm-hmm. they sort of notice okay, we have. Reached the plateau of of what we could do with that South African programming, mm-hmm. and I think, which is a very South African problem. Instead of saying, "Okay, it is a majority black country, so we're going to have a majority black contestants," it's almost it, it it's almost divine, like it's a divine intervention that they figured out. No, we should make a continental program. Right, right. And again, not because they were like they had visions of pan Africanism. It was selfish. Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. understood. They pick people from markets where they could grow. So the traditional kind of satellite markets of South African TV, like you said, Zimbabwe, uh, Botswana, et cetera, but Namibia, uh, you know, and also their language affinities, cultural Mm -hmm. affinities, et cetera. uh, Long histories of like, you know, migrancy, the regional capitalism, the the implication of those countries in South Africa's border wars, et cetera. But they also pick like countries where there's wealth like Angola, Nigeria, you know, they, they made sure that they have contestants from those various countries. The unintended consequences, they put them in this house, in this Big Brother Africa house, and this stuff gets shown, not just on DSTV, but there's this thing, and the two two ways. One is within South Africa and some of the Southern African countries, they have that thing called open time. So mm-hmm. you can watch DSTV without paying for it, but it's on your local channel. And Mm -hmm. they make deals with Tanzanian public broadcasting, Malawian public broadcasting, to show the highlight shows of these Big Brother shows. And so on Sunday night, you have everybody watching it. Mm -hmm. You have people commenting, because this is also the beginning of the cell phone thing. Right, And Watching, yeah, watching the stuff, emerging themselves in the story, and picking sides. But -hmm. not just necessarily Zimbabweans. I'm just always voting for the Zimbabwean contestant they start voting for the person from Botswana, right. for the Ugandan, because they like their personality. So right. it, so the Pan-Africanism that emerges from this is not very political. Mm-hmm. It's really sort of based on, you know, it's youth culture, it's itinerant. It's just some mm. uh, thing that's a sort of frivolous thing. It's like, I like that person, I relate to them. There are mm-hmm. some political things. So you have... The South African contestant in that first big brother, she happened to be, I think she was coloured, you know, like mixed race. Yeah,
0: yes. She um, had like a
1: thing with this guy. <laughs> she, she, had a thing. Yeah. she had a thing with a guy from Uganda. Yes. And so people like that relationship. Right. The interesting thing is the South Africans are voting against her and the white South Africans are mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. so voting for this white Namibian kid. So there's yes. all kinds of politics playing out in this. Mm-hmm. Um, and the person who wins, she wins because she represents a sort of wholesome African woman, young African woman who's, who's you know, together because mm-hmm. she's a good candidate as a, as a daughter-in-law. Like, like that's, the, mm-hmm. that's, that's the kind of popular criteria. In some places, you know, old people don't like the show. I think, famously, Wally Sawyinka hated it. Um, oh. and Nigerians are like, I like that show. So, mm-hmm. so you gets sort of voted in Malawi and government tries to ban it. But oh. out, I think if there's anything for me that's sort of positive, you know, when you say like before the internet, you have DSTV creating a kind of continental identity, continental culture. I think mm-hmm. the, at best what emerges out of it, I would say is a couple of things. One is at a, at a sort of very political level, it means, and there's quotes from some of the contestants saying this, where they say like, you know, I'm Ghanaian, but I begin to see like I have a lot in common with somebody from Tanzania or somebody from South Africa. So there's, there's definitely a kind of a continental um, consciousness developed. I mm-hmm. also think a sort of middle class, uh, th- th- there's this kind of consumption class, you know, like these middle class people in these different countries who they see that there's things they want to get, like uh, yeah. you know, products. Because mm-hmm. there's is also a product. There's a lot of product placement on these shows, and then I think beyond that, it's it does. Unfortunately, it's limited in the politically because it basically just says anybody who's a member of that class and who is who is who who can be mobile. Because some of those people end up as presenters, right? DSTV, and they get careers on other channels, etc. Okay. So it, it basically just becomes a vehicle for a sort of mobile middle class. Who enjoys mostly South African products? Woolworths, Shoprite, you know, it's it it just it the the the, the Vodacom, uh, what's the other one called? MTN, which is bigger yeah. than Vodacom in the yeah. rest of the continent. So it, I think it did a lot for that. And yeah. so, the, the, but what I think is different now is what. Well, then you have I don't know if you remember your Big Brother Niger. Yeah. You have, like, this the African, the African versions of, like, the, the, the voice. There's these different yes. voice-type shows. Initially, again, they're very South African. And the big part of the Niger thing is interesting. It's a specifically Nigerian program. Mm-hmm. But it was filmed a lot in South Africa. At one oh, point, really? they, they didn't have, they didn't, there was issues around, like, you know, the uh, reliable electricity supply. Mm-hmm. So they had this show in Joburg. So there's mm-hmm. like a big brother, Nigel, but it's been filmed in Joburg. So, mm-hmm. so it's, it's very much, there is a reproduction of a very sort of a South African idea of itself. Some of the progressive ideas around, you know, women, sexuality, mm-hmm. gender politics comes out of, I think the show did a lot, the various, yeah. various you know seasons did a lot to do that. But I think it was limited in that it, it, it basically was, it was still kind of an aspirational thing right so police could afford
0: to participate yeah. how then does you know given this politics of um south africa as this very dominant cultural production force within the continent how then do you as a south african yourself start a platform that is redressing this idea of africa as a country how do you position yourself given that there is this power differential between South Africa and the rest of Africa or this exceptionalism.
1: Um that's a that's a that's a that's a I won't put you on the spot. I mean I mean my 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 take comes from somewhere else. So like mm-hmm. I don't, so how I enter this this kind of space is I think there's two things. Some of it is personal, some of mm-hmm. it is political. So mm-hmm. I came, I left South Africa in the mid 90s on a Fulbright scholarship. And mm-hmm. I came to the U.S. to study for a master's in political science at Northwestern University. And actually, I studied um, the introduction of satellite television into South Africa. That was uh-huh. my master thesis. I don't know where that thesis is now. I would like to go look at it again. Uh-huh. Because it didn't, it didn't have much original research in it because there wasn't much out there.
0: Right. right, There
1: wasn't much data on this stuff. And I think it was, a lot of what I wrote was probably conjecture.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But being in Chicago, like in the mid 90s, is a sort of interesting period for, you know, kind of black in, in black American politics, the, you know, there's, there's the, the million man March, which I was critical. I understood its function, but I was critical of like, it's what it could achieve politically. And I was living in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, I was also being exposed to the, the, the program on African studies at Northwestern was one of the best in the U.S. at the time. They had a great library, the Melville Herskovitz Library. Um, they would bring like people like Mamdani, Mahutondani would come to town. You know, like various the African Studies Association would have its annual meeting. So basically, not knowing anything, coming from South Africa, very insular, um, very uh, you know, a country that doesn't that doesn't look outward, that's obsessed with itself. As you know, even in, like I said earlier, like. It, it's, it's, it's development, it's a function of like regional forces, like yeah. Zimbabweans, well what is now Zimbabweans, Mozambicans, Angolans are like as implicated in the history of South Africa. Even my own family, my, my, some of my ancestors are slaves that were brought from, from what is now, Muslim, you know, from the Portuguese Mozambique
0: mm.
1: at the end of the sev- uh, 17th century to South Africa. They mm-hmm. actually, in South Africa, they were known as Musbegers. Like that mm-hmm. was their, like, like the colloquial name, which means Mozambicans. They were slaves in Cape Town. Mm-hmm. So despite all of that, South Africa is very insular, very, you know, very parochial. And so mm-hmm. arriving, I think for me, arriving in mid-1990s, just as South Africa was also becoming free and coming, if you want, like back into the world, but still insisting on its exceptionalism, right. reading sort of Mamdani's citizen and subject. That insist, that insist on the idea that South Africa isn't that exceptional what's happening in South Africa is just you know, another variation on a the theme around colonialism. You know, be, being exposed to all these people, all these ideas, I think that, that changed. And also being with other African grad students
0: mm-hmm. that
1: went through Fulbright, and of course, as I'm on campus did. I think that did a lot for my own sort of, how I understood my own kind of place in the world you know, mm-hmm. reading, reading, uh, beginning to read Walter Rodney, like, because yeah. when you grow up in South Africa, you're not exposed to those ideas, CLR right. Jones, etc. So Stuart Hall. So, you know, uh, and I think that, so that's one part of it.
0: Mm-hmm. The, the
1: second part of it is when I got back to South Africa, I worked for this, for IDASA. And this IDASA was, was basically while it was very, lo- while it tried to un- understand and make sense of local political problems, so I worked there from 97 to 2000, 2000 yeah. um, or I think it was 2001. I was still working then 2001, but I was mostly gone already. But it was, mm-hmm. it, what I liked about that period was IDASA, the way IDASA thought, and it, it had big roles in like the Truth Commission, the Truth and Reconciliation mm-hmm. Commission, mm-hmm. South Africa's, firstly South Africa's transition from um, apartheid to a negotiated settlement, it held meetings in Dakar, you know, it brought people from other places where there were political transitions taking place, particularly Latin America. It made other connections with uh, the truth commissions that were held in Latin America and thinking about what would the South African Truth Commission look like. It thought a lot about electoral politics. We did workshops. I, I started doing lots of workshops in like, you know, in Botswana, in Zimbabwe, in Namibia. Like, so you're like you're traveling also, Mozambique. So I think like mm-hmm. that, that was the second, like sort of, for me, like the second element of that. But then I think also just thirdly, I'm uh, growing up in South Africa, growing up particularly in Cape Town. There's like a long kind of leftist, um, leftist political current in Cape Town. My, I think it's I'm not it's not entire. It's not like the ANC. It's more like there's like Trotskyist elements, you know, uh, the, the kind of workers' left. Um, there's lots of linkages with there were linkages with like the South African Communist Party but there were other kinds of leftists that operated in Cape Town so mm. and with that there was also people making lots of magazines, Staff mm. Writer in South Africa, the South African the Work in Progress so all of that together this kind of being exposed to other Africans like in a classroom living right. outside South Africa mixed with an impetus to make this kind of public intellectual culture by producing maybe something that could be a version of that, but online, like yes. I said earlier, like the nation or the new statesman. I mm-hmm. think that is how my, that's how Africa as a country came about. I don't think it was necessarily, mm-hmm. oh, South Africa is exceptional and I'm gonna try hard to be, mm-hmm. to be like that. I think mm-hmm. it, it probably happened organically. Mm-hmm. Because here I am, like I said, I'm studying with other people, I'm very curious. I'm, you know, I'm reading a lot. I'm sort of, I'm a sponge. I'm just taking in. And I think over time it just happened that, oh, and I also, I should say this because I want to give him a shout out. I also worked on Chimurenga. Yeah. The magazine of Antone, you know, came originally from Cameroon and studied in Nigeria. So being around that group of people in South Africa, particularly in Cape Town, the sort of intellectual culture around that group in the early 2000s, which is a very Pan-African magazine. I think all of that added up to when you're outside, this is the last part of it, when you're outside, when I'm outside in the early 2000s, I'm beginning to make sense of of myself as an immigrant. It is also true historically that when Africans are outside, a lot of the while well, we are very aware of like where we're from or the very specific cultural references i'm from cape town you from mm-hmm. i don't know harare Bulawayo. i think mm-hmm. those things yeah. are where are you from again
0: i'm i'm born in, Bulaway.
1: in Bulawayo. yeah. so i've been to Bulawayo with with Hawaii, uh, That's so- the white street i also did like i did vacations i would go to like you know me and two other friends we would just say okay we're doing Zimbabwe. Let's go for Christmas. We'll do like Choburg, Buleweo, Buleweo, Wanga, mm-hmm. you know, the falls, then to the Chimamanda, the highlands, come down to, through like the, where's the the, 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 the Matopo Hills. Then we just mm-hmm. hang out in Harare. Like, you know, I, I, I think I was kind of doing that anyway. Right. And I think this, all of that adds up. Like being curious, love, I like reading. Yeah. Um, I also like always. I'm also always fascinated. If somebody has a good idea, I'm willing to like go like, yeah, Yo, your idea is better than mine. So mm-hmm. I think that just made it yeah. possible to say, like, okay, I can. I think I can run a magazine like this, and I would be able to to like if things change. If things change in the intellectual environment, in other words, if new ideas come, I know how to be open to that, That's and I think right. that is what I think helped make that possible.
0: All right, that's a wrap for today. I really hope you enjoyed this and I look forward to having you on the second part of this uh, episode as well as episodes to follow. As always, you can find the platform on Twitter. Send us a tweet uh, with your own reflections about this episode. The handle is at Native Podcast. You can also send an email to info at digitallynativepodcast.com. Uh, You can also visit the website www.digitallynativepodcast.com and subscribe to our monthly newsletter to get more information about the digital space. All right, do have a good rest of your week and I'll catch you the next time.